as we jump into this message today, I, I was talking to some guys yesterday at our men's breakfast, and I, I realized something um, pretty important that I thought would be worth sharing to you. Uh, how many of you loved math class in school? Yeah, it was like six of you. That's awesome. I was one of those dorks. I liked math class. Um, uh, one of the things that people didn't like about math class was that there were, there were problems that were presented, and the teacher wanted you to give the answer to the problem, but the teacher didn't just want the answer, did they? They wanted you to show your work, right? Show your work all the time. And you know why the teacher wanted you to show your work? Because they're jerks. That's why. No, um, the teacher wanted you to show their wor your work because they wanted to make sure you knew what it is that you were doing, okay? Here is how this works when it comes to biblical understandings and, and, and thoughts. Sometimes we intuitively arrive at the right answer. Sometimes we have the right answer because our tradition has taught us that right answer or our family has taught us that right answer, and that's fine. But the problem is many in this generation, many in this culture today, don't know how to show their work. They don't know how to show you that they've arrived at a right conclusion in their theology or in their understanding. And so one of the things that I feel I have a responsibility to do is that. So uh, I know that this is a really dumb parallel for a, par uh, for a pastor to lead off with, but I am basically a very, very bad math teacher. And what I'm doing is trying to show you how to show your work. This doesn't make for energetic, awesome, lively sermons all the time, but it does provide you with the substance that you need in order to prove the points that you want to prove when you're actually in these discussions, okay? So uh, I know only six of you said you liked math class, which means only six of you will like this sermon, but it'll be okay, okay? So I am fine with that. I'm just embracing the reality of who Nathan is. So today I want to start off by showing you guys an illustration that many of you are familiar with. Uh, it's called the spinning ballerina. How many of you have ever seen the spinning ballerina? You're about to. Um, it's, called, it's called the spinning ballerina optical illusion, but you kind of get the point here. Uh, you'll get the point here in a second. We're going to watch about 25 seconds of this optical illusion, and what I want you to do is I want you to call out, clockwise or counterclockwise, I want you to call out the direction you see the girl spinning, and then when she changes direction in your perception, I want you to just say change. And you can all do it at the same time. I don't care. It will sound awesome. Okay, so let's queue up 25 seconds of the spinning ballerina. Here we go. <laughs> so awesome. It sounds like a Pentecostal church speaking in tongues right now. It's amazing. Are you guys shocked? At, oh, there it is. That was, a, that was an awesome response. Oh, there it is. Okay, let's go, ahead and, let's go ahead and take that off. So as you can see, some of us started with different directions. Counterclockwise, clockwise, I heard that. Uh, many of you changed directions or saw her change directions at various points. It just simply proves that the video is not cued to change her direction, right? And then, of course, other comments, which were quite funny. Uh, but the, all you talking together, in case you missed it, it definitely sounded like speaking in tongues in a Pentecostal church, right? <laughs> I have no idea what was just said, but, you know, whatever. It's all good. So now what I want you to do is I want you to watch the same exact illusion 
This one's called the spinning ballerina made easy. The difference in this version and the previous version is that the the creators have given us a point of reference. So for the ballerina on the left, there's a, a red line on her posting leg. That's her straight leg down. And then on the right, to you, uh, the ballerina has a blue posting line. It's going to be small, so you might not see it. But I want you to I want you to try to focus on this. What's interesting about this one when you see it? is that it will offer you the ability or afford you the ability to see the ballerina change direction whenever you want, right? You just look to the left, you look to the right, you choose which one you want to do, and it will change the view. So let's go ahead and cue that one up for about 25 seconds. Was that curious or what? I like the response. Huh? That's good. It's good, isn't it? It's very interesting. Some of you are like, what are we looking at right now? It doesn't make any sense. I don't get this. Awesome. Okay. So today we're gonna be talking about um, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a very important subject in biblical interpretation. That subject is what is called uh, the plain reading view of a text of scripture. What is the plain reading? What is the plain view uh, of the text that we're actually reading today? The purpose of the illustration, though, is to show you that one's plain view may not always be absolute. Every one of you were like, I don't know, clockwise, counterclockwise. She's changing here. She's changing there. Uh, the the challenge or the, the difference came when you saw a point of reference and it locked it in for you, right? Again, this is an important biblical principle when it comes to interpretation. And here's the principle. It'll be on the screen. Our point of reference matters when it comes to how we understand a text. Our point of reference, that red line or that blue line, matters deeply when it comes to how we understand a text. It's worth noting that although a text can be read in many different ways, there is, ultimately, there is one truth. And we're aiming at one truth. Can I get an amen? We're aiming at one truth. Here's here's where uh, we need to have grace with one another. Arriving at that truth requires not just claiming what is possible, but in understanding or in digging for what is most plausible, okay? Not just what is possible of a text. A plain reading is going to present you with a lot of possibilities, but we have to ask the question, what is most plausible? On the rare occasion, and it is a rare occasion, when you think about all that Scripture teaches and all that the church has uh, presented to us, uh, it is a rare occasion that two or more views will have equal plausibility of something, right? You, you hear a text, and it's like, well, it could go this way, and it could go that way. And there are rare occasions when both seem equally plausible. If you were putting them on a chart, scale of 1 to 10, both are at a 9. It seems like both these could make sense. In that situation, it's rare, but in that situation, what you have to do is you have to make a choice based on your conscience. That is what you have to do. And for all of us in this room that are black and white people, you have to suck it up because sometimes it's not always black and white, Kim Duffy, right? Right? This is not fun because we don't like gray areas. We want it to be just absolute. So I'm going to start off, and I'm going to give you some simple examples to show you that the plain reading of a text 
isn't always what it appears to be. Our first is what is often called the Great Commission. That's a title we've given to it, but you understand why. Both Matthew 28 and Mark 16 give us an account of the Great Commission. How many of you know that? Okay, we have two accounts of the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and Mark 16, and this is Jesus telling us to go into all the world. Here are those texts respectively. They're going to be put on the screen. Matthew 28, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Now, Mark 16 says this. Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table. Interesting. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. You remember all those women who came back from the tomb? Well, he corrected them because they didn't believe him for whatever reason. And the verse says, and he said to them, go. Who's the them there? The 11 disciples, right? So there are two things that I want you to take note of according to the plain reading of the text. First is that Jesus gave this commission only to 11 men. Interesting. Can you deny that? No, you can't deny that because that is the plain reading of the text. The second is that Matthew's account, Jesus gives the commission on a mountainside while Mark says they were reclining at a table. Now, before everybody gets all weird on that second observation, there's no need to worry about a contradiction. This simply shows us that each author... Each author uh, uh, uses their perspective to tell a particular story. This is an interesting point when it comes to uh, biblical interpretation and understanding inspiration in a correct fashion. Okay, So biblical interpretation and biblical inspiration in a correct fashion. Um, I'm going to talk more to inspiration in just a second. But what I want you to see is that this is exactly what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Moses ascended the mountain with the 70 elders, and they sat down, and they broke bread of some kind. They had a meal with the Lord, okay? It's an amazing idea. So what we really should see, if we're going to look to the spiritual understanding of things, is we should actually, we should actually see that something pivotal is changing here. This is a new Moses moment. This is a new mountaintop moment. That's what a Jewish mind would have taken away from this. What do we take away? Are they at a table or are they on a mountain? That's what Americans do, right? This is just what a Western mind seems to think. But what about that first observation? If we're to go on the plain reading of the text, then we would come away with the idea that the Great Commission is given solely to the 11 disciples. It was written to them, it was written for them, and now we're moving on. We're all off the hook when it comes to preaching the gospel. And I know most of you are just saying amen and hallelujah in your mind. But you're wrong. That's not actually what is happening. That is not the truth of what is going on here. Our knowledge of this truth, how do we arrive at that truth, our knowledge is not determined based on the plain reading of the text. We can see that uh, we have to look at the rest of Scripture, don't we? How many of you guys remember the Psalm 119, 160 principle? The sum of God's word is truth. The sum of it. 
Not one verse taken out of context, not this or that. You can't just pick and choose, okay? So everything is required here. Uh, we can see that the Apostle Paul presents the gospel and believes that he is called to this same commission. Was he there on the mountaintop? No, he was still breathing out threats against Christians at this point. According to the Didache, which is an ancient writing of the first century church, they knew that their responsibility was to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, specifically verses 18 and 20, show an express communication that you and I, those who will be products of the eleven, will eventually go into all the world and preach the gospel as well. The very reality, church, that we are sitting here today because someone went into all the world and preached the gospel is enough of a proof. Jesus did not give this commission to only 11, but that's the plain reading of the text. Do you see how nuance matters in what we're doing? Do you see how biblical interpretation is a little more challenging than, but that's what it says, but that's what it says. It's a little bit more than that. So let's turn our attention to another example. And this one will be fun for you because it's hilarious to me. Um, and it is the biblical idea that ministers can and should be taken care of for their work in the Lord. Now, just before I jump into this, this is not a pastor in a money talk, so don't panic, don't freak out. It's going to be okay. I promise you it's going to be okay. So this is the ox treading out the grain from Deuteronomy 25.4. Here's what the text says. Plain reading of the text. Say it with me, church. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. How dare you call me an ox? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, what, okay what's the plain reading of this text? Ox should eat when they do their job. I'm sorry, there's no other way to, to twist this passage. And guess what? The surrounding context of Deuteronomy is just like this. It's just random laws. There's nothing about men in this. Okay? But what we have is an idea that says your ox should be able to eat when it does its job. It needs strength, it needs energy, it needs power, right? Case closed, we've got the plain reading of the text. Paul thinks otherwise. As a matter of fact, Paul just goes completely out in left field on this one. And it is hilarious when you understand it. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. Specifically, verse 9, right off the bat, look at what he says. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So is he talking about the same passage here? Yes, it's the only time this appears in the scripture. Okay, so he's quoting Deuteronomy in this. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of pretend that Paul was talking to me at this moment, and you can kind of do the same thing in your mind, because this is about how the conversation would have gone with me. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? I, I don't know, Paul. I, I, I really don't know. I don't even know what you're about to say. Okay. Or does the law not say, also say, these things? For it is written, the law, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. It does say that, Paul. I gotcha. Okay, I'm with you so far. We're really good for this. Okay, he goes on. He says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Well, well, I thought, thought he was. <laughs> I was pretty sure that that was about ox. What, would it, what else would it be about, about in this, Paul? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? 
altogether, Paul? Altogether? Not for anything else? No other purpose at all? Altogether for my sake? Paul interrupts. Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing in the crops. What in the heck? That's exactly what I would have said to him. I'd have been like, you, you lost your dang mind. You sound like a modern American Christian quoting things out of context. That's what you sound like. Context, Paul. What in the world are you talking about? That is the most ad hoc interpretation of a Bible passage I have ever heard. Amen? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. In two views on women in ministry, Craig Keener says this. He says, while some of us may not want to accept that Paul uses Scripture in an ad hoc way at times, it makes it difficult for us to teach sound hermeneutics to students. (laughs) Hermeneutics means an interpretive method. It is really hard to teach an interpretive method when he's pulling stuff out about ox and he's talking about us. Okay? It's really hard to find this. Keener goes on. He says, respect for Scripture requires, for all of those out here who believe that Scripture is inspired, that Scripture is inerrant, that Scripture is sufficient, for all that believe this, listen to Keener's words. Respect for that Scripture requires us to revise our preconceptions in light of what we find in the text rather than, and this is something everybody in this room does, forcing the text to fit philosophical assumptions about what we think it should say. You do this. I do this. We do it all the time. We have to embrace this change, and it's going to help us in in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in just a second. Based on verse 9, the plain reading of the text is quite simple. Yet Paul emphatically stresses in verse 8 and in verse 10 that this is altogether about you and I or about pastors. This is interesting. God is not concerned about oxen. Is he? Rhetorical question written in the negative. Answer is no. That's the, that's the magic of Greek, right? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Rhetorical question spoken in the positive. The only answer is yes. And so he answers it. Yes, for our sake it is written. This should remind us of last week when Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 14, 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Interesting. You know what I told you last week, right? The Old Testament does not record such a law. There is no such Old Testament law that says anything of the sort. I also told you that most commentators who are trying to read something into the text, who are trying to fill in the blanks of context, who are doing what they do, what we all do, which is to try to make sense of a weird world, they assume that Paul is talking about creation order ideas. But that's not necessarily accurate. It does make you wonder, though. Makes you wonder if Paul can interpret Deuteronomy the way he does about pastors and shepherds, what kind of strange text he'd pull out of the Bible to say, this is a law in the Old Testament. Right? I mean, it could be the craziest thing ever. Don't mess with your camel. Therefore. (laughs) Like, what are we talking about here, Paul? We have no idea. I could go on with texts like this, and I'm going to put a couple up on the screen. I'm going to have them leave them up there for just a second for you to copy these down. 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 and 9. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You should read those together. 
Jeremiah, or, uh, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. You should read those passages back to back. The plain reading of the text is absolutely confusing, and in the Proverbs instance, it would be contradictory if you don't understand there's more to an idea than the plain reading of a text. Also, when it comes to uh, how God fashions his pottery, his clay, his people, Romans 9.21 has to be held in, con- in conjunction with 2 Timothy 2.21 and Jeremiah 18.1-4. If you read it without those contexts, your plain reading will be, well, let me say it simply, stupid. It will be a very, very bad interpretation. This reveals that the plain reading of the Bible requires a whole lot more understanding for proper interpretation. What does it require? It requires a point of reference. That's what context is all about. That's what all of this is about. So my argument today is that the same idea is true for 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The plain reading of the text is something you have to be careful with. Because the plain reading of the text has led to all kinds of bad interpretations. And I'm here to tell you the same thing Dr. Heiser said last week, which is that bad Bible interpretation has hurt many people. And this is kind of the, the, the paramount passage with regard to women in ministry. Here's what 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 14 says. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. You can take a deep breath now, because that's a hard passage. (gasps) Right? That's a hard passage. Why is that a hard passage? Because every one of you is doing exactly what I just said you would do. You're reading it based on a plain reading of the text. And you're settling in your mind that you also know its interpretation. So let me challenge you with what's being said here. The plain reading of the text. If you really want to look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, you're going to find that there are several plain readings of that text. Let me give you three of those. The first one is this. Paul's opinion. That's the first one. You can write that down on your notes. Paul's opinion. This is just Paul's opinion alone. Look at what Paul says. But I do not allow. But I do not allow. Now some will reject this idea. You're you're getting ahead of yourself if you do. Some will reject the idea without a proper hearing because they'll assert, Nathan, this is inspired scripture. There can be and is room for no opinion whatsoever. You haven't read your Bible smile at me. Smile at me. Somebody came up to me this morning and said, you really do like studying. Yes, I do. But I have ulterior motives. I love to study because I love to be right. Okay? Doesn't mean I'm right here. I'm just simply saying I've got ulterior motives, right? Okay? So he says, I do not permit or I do not allow We have seen Paul assert his opinion before, right within inspired scripture. Look at what 1 Corinthians 7, 12 says. But to the rest I say, say it out, church. What? Not the Lord. 
What do, you, what do you even mean here? I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. What do we do with that? Plain reading of the text, you can always go to see that Paul would assert his opinion. I'd highly recommend you consider the possibility that God allowed each and every writer's personality to color and influence inspired scripture. I'll prove to you that he actually did that in just a second. Scripture writing was not a paranormal event where God put words into people's heads or moved their hands along. They went into a trance in their room and they're like, the book of Corinthians. It's not how it happened, church. I know this challenges some long-held ideas of what is called plenary inspiration, that God not only inspired the scripture, but he inspired every single word inside of the scripture. I want to challenge that for just a second for you. First of all, it's, a, it's an idea that's come with tradition. But here's what I want to challenge you. Why is it that the Gospels aren't all identical then? Why aren't they identical? If God wanted every word to be spoken exactly how he wanted it to be spoken, why did he even open up the interpretation for different perspectives? Why would he do such a thing? Let me go even further. Why is it that God would inspire the exact words on the page? Listen, this view does not screw with inspiration. It messes with your tradition. That's the only thing that's unsettling in this, right? Why would God inspire every word and say, I, not the Lord? Why would he do that? Why would he inspire each and every word and say, I, not the Lord? But it is the Lord. So he's lying to us, right? Do you see the problem here? Why would Paul say in 1 Timothy, I'm telling you the truth, I am not lying? Why, why? This is absolute inspired scripture. It's sufficient, it's infallible, it is all of that. It just doesn't require these absurd extra ideas that we read into our traditions. It doesn't require it. And here's the deal. You wrestle with it. You don't just get to go, Nathan, that's just dumb. Fine. You wrestle with it. It's right there. How do we come up with the ideas we come up with? I'm not sure anymore. I think most people just adopt what grandma said. Grandma may be awesome. Grandma may be wrong. Okay? So let's just understand that. Sorry, grandmas. Every grandma's like, I'm killing him. I'm killing him. He's dead. I don't even care what he thinks about inspiration, right? So the first plain reading of this text is that this is just Paul's opinion. Just Paul's opinion on the matter. And please understand, it has merit. The argument has merit. The second one, the most common one in traditionalist perspectives or complementarian perspectives is what is called the universal prohibition. The second plain reading of this is that Paul, in fact, prohibits women from speaking, teaching, or exercising authority over men universally, not just in Timothy's Ephesus, okay? I think you'll find that there are going to be some problems with this as well. I'm going to show my work, so don't, don't worry. The math teacher is working here. If this is, in fact, universal, then what should we never find throughout Scripture? We should never find an exception to the rule, because if it's universal, it has to be universal, doesn't it? So, let's talk about this. First, 
uh, the word concerning silence. The word here is not complete silence or absence of speech. That word in Greek is segeo. Paul did use that word on occasion. He used it in Romans 16.25. He used it in 1 Corinthians 14.28, talking about spiritual gifts. He used it in 1 Corinthians 14.30, again talking about spiritual gifts and revelation. And in those instances, it meant keep quiet. (laughs) It meant go ahead and silence what you're saying. Go ahead and stop. If a prophet comes in, this prophet sits down and shuts up. And this prophet carries on. And the main objective is order within the service. The word used in Timothy, however, has to do with quiet behavior. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11. So, how many of you are uh, word geeks? You like words and you think words matter. And they do matter. Well, good. Then apply your your proclivity there. Apply that word mattering uh, idea to this. It means to attend to your own business. It does not mean utter silence. So you have to use the word that's on the page. Not to be busybodies, not to be gossips, not to be someone propagating a wrong idea or a teaching. It even prohibits being idle. That's what this word means. So when Paul uses this word, he's actually addressing chaos. He's addressing a mess that's going on, which he gives a remedy for, by the way, which is contentment. And if I have time, I'll I'll get there. I don't think I will. But he says that the remedy to this chaos is actually be content in your place. Be content with what you have. In just a few minutes, I'm going to show you that this word and its usage are perfectly fitting for the context of 1 Timothy 2. That is what is happening in Ephesus. Chaos, and Paul is going to bring it into order. A second point to consider is what we learned last week in 1 Corinthians 14.26, which says that everybody in the church, say this with me, church, everybody in the church, one more time, everybody in the church, when they come together, 1 Corinthians 14.26, should have a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Well, there's one more exception to the rule. We have that the word doesn't mean what people think it means. And we have the fact that, God, that Paul has called, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's called everyone to come and to contribute in the assembly. And by the way, this isn't a New Testament idea. The same thing happened in the assembly of the Old Testament when Miriam is prophesying or when Miriam is singing songs or what have you. Again, this is not what people think it means. Absolutely everyone. So how can this be absolute silence? Well, the answer is it can't. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians eleven five, women are to prophesy. Guess what prophecy requires? Speaking. <laughs> Just make sure you're aware of that, right? Paul nowhere else prohibits women from speaking. There's something going on in Ephesus in this view. And this means that we need a point of reference in order to see what the plain reading of that text is actually saying. So what about women teaching? This is the real stickler for the uh, ultra-traditionalist or the, the, um, the hyper uh, complementarians, right? What about women teaching? More specifically, are women prohibited from teaching men? And as some will inevitably do, let's add yet another level of of challenge to this, to this argument. Are women prohibited from teaching men when the church is gathered? 
Now, does this sound like we're making all kinds of extra little steps to try to prove something? It does because people are. They are because the Bible keeps smacking them in the face, okay? So it was, can women teach over men? And then all of a sudden we see something like Priscilla and Aquila correcting Apollos. And every scholar on the planet understands that that was happening. And guess whose name appears first in the correction? Priscilla, not Aquila, which is weird, that's really strange, actually, for the time. So you have that. So they say, well, it's men over women inside of the church setting. That's the problem. Why? Because over and over, we have Timothy being brought up on his mother and his grandmother's teaching. We have Anna, the high, Anna the priest, who is prophesying, which, by the way, is teaching people things. These issues keep being presented from the text of Scripture. And what do we do? We wiggle. The church wiggles. The church goes, eh, it's got to be something else. Guess what is absolutely never stated in the scripture? Women cannot teach men inside of a church setting. That is not said. That is read into texts of scripture, okay? So 1 Corinthians 11.5 says this. Or 1 Corinthians 11.5, 1 Corinthians 14.26, and 1 Corinthians 14.31 all communicate the opposite of this. Look at what 11.5 says. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. And it goes on and says, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. What is the focus though here? Yes, there's an honor that's supposed to be here. But what is presumed that women will do in the public gathering? Pray and prophesy. It's right there, right? But they must do it in a respectful manner. By the way, that was the problem in Ephesus. There was all manner of disrespect and all manner of usurping authority and all manner of stepping on everybody's toes. And it was happening across the board. We'll see it in just a second. They're to pray and to prophesy. The only thing we're concerned with here in that passage is that they were allowed to do so. The question is, the question is, what does prophecy do? Or in other Another way of saying it, what are prophecies effects? They're twofold. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.31. For you all prophesy, or you can all prophesy. Who's all there? It's the church. It's all, right? You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn? Huh. I guess prophecy is a form of teaching. It is a form of teaching, guys. It's exactly what the gospel is, just so you know. It's a prophetic word made more sure. That's what the Bible says. It is a prophetic word. It is a prophecy. And all can do it. And guess what? All learn in light of it. And 1 Corinthians is in the church gathered setting. And it also goes on and says, all may be exhorted. We can add to the pile and reference 1 Corinthians 14.26. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one, again, has a psalm. Each one has a teaching. Each one has a revelation. Each one has a tongue. Each one has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That does not mean literally everybody comes in with a separate teaching. We'll be here twice as long as Nathan goes already, right? We're not talking about that. We're talking about something different. We're saying that everybody has gifts and they're all supposed to share them, whatever that gift is. And there is absolutely no text in Scripture which says teaching is prohibited. Uh, women are not given the gift of teaching. 
There's nowhere you'll find that in the text of Scripture. So the Scripture goes on. Colossians chapter 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is the church he's talking to, so it's a y'all. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So who's teaching here? All y'all. And who's learning? All y'all. This goes beyond Paul. Look at what Peter says. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. That's what it goes on to say, right? But everybody has been given this, these gifts. Please hear this, church. We don't need to cross-reference all of these passages for any other reason than to see that Paul and others don't speak of this universally. There is no universal prohibition in this. If it was universal, it would not be able to be contradicted, and it's contradicted in every verse that I've just shared with you. So what is the solution? A deeper meaning must be found. So now we have Paul's opinion. That's the first view. The second one is a universal prohibition, and I want you to be challenged by what I'm sharing right there. The first seems challenging to people who uh, might not get a... um, a particular view of inspiration. The second seems challenging because it goes against tradition. It goes against maybe, maybe your, uh, your upbringing. Uh, but they are valid concerns, and they must be dealt with correctly, okay? They must be dealt with, and you must show your work. Otherwise, you're saying, nuh-uh is not an argument, Right? God says that women can do all these things in the church. Nuh-uh. Okay, I'll go talk to somebody who wants to have a real discussion, right? That's not an answer, okay? So what about the third plain view? Well, this plain view is, I guess, a little less plain. It requires a bit of the context. Just an Ephesian problem. So let's start with the immediate, immediate context. Linda Belleville does a masterful job of, of communicating or summing this up. Here's what she says. The first step in getting a handle on these verses is to be clear about the letter as a whole. Why was Paul writing? How many of you start your readings this way? Why was this written? You should. You should ask that question. Why was Paul writing? Linda goes on and says, It certainly was not to provide routine instruction. His stance throughout was a corrective one. Paul was reacting, this will be on the screen, Paul was reacting to a situation that had gotten out of hand. False teachers needed silencing. And you can see all of the references that prove this. And you can look them up. They'll be on my, uh, on my uh, blog this week as well. So you can go there and find out all those references as well. Certain widows, Linda goes on and says, we're going, on, we're going from house to house speaking things they ought not speak. And this was more than just telling of Susie's business. It was wrong teaching. Chapter 5, verse 13. Others had turned away from the faith altogether to follow Satan. Certain elders needed public rebuking on account of their continuing sin. By the way, elders can sin. Others had been expelled, chapter 1, verse 20. The men of the congregation had become angry and quarrelsome, chapter 2, verse 8. The women were dressing inappropriately, verse 9. And as Linda says, they were learning in a disruptive manner, verses 11 and 12. 
The congregation had turned to malicious talk, malevolent suspicion, and perpetual friction. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Some members of the church had wandered from the faith altogether. Verses 20 and 21. Here's Linda's final statement. Overall, it was an alarming scenario. Sounds like a lot of American churches. Anyway, so it was an alarming scenario. Might it be, might it be, church, that in light of all that was going on and with a particular problem for the Ephesian women being manipulated and then going from house to house and spreading this nonsense, and remember, the church was held in houses, not in buildings like this, might it be that Paul was making a prohibition against these women? It's very probable, guys. It's very probable. So some of you will say, fine, Nathan, that's a great idea. But Paul appeals to the creation order as his defense. He says it's a creation order issue. Okay, so number one, we have to ask whether we see this saying, uh, we, we see this elsewhere. The answer is yes, creation order appeals. We see it elsewhere. The second thing that I want you to remember is what we talked about in week three. We have proven women are not ontologically inferior to men. Can I get an amen? Women are not easy, more easily deceived. You cannot construe these words to say it, right? There's a passage in, in 1 Peter that says women are weaker vessels. There is no way, it is a stretch far beyond credulity to say that this implies mental inferiority or weakness to men. Absolutely cannot be found, okay? Instead, we have to look further at what Paul says. Do you remember Paul's ad hoc interpretation of Deuteronomy? Yep, so oxen are pastors. Thanks a lot, Paul. Okay, now let's look at what he does here with Eve being deceived. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul appeals to the creation order with regard to head coverings. Here's what he says. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Bunch of bald women running around, okay? But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. Notice the difference here. He is the image and glory of God. The woman is, does not say image and glory. She's still the image of God. She is the glory of man. She is his crown jewel. That is the way we understand glory, right? She is his crown jewel, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Therefore, remember the creation order appeal, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, that's clear as mud. Because of the angels. So we'll look that up some other time. Now, if we look at just these two references to the creation order, you know what we should come away with? Paul universally doesn't want women to teach, to speak, to hold authority over a man. And every one of you women next week needs to have a head covering on. It's an appeal to creation. You deal with it. It says it, you do it. If you're going to hold the stance that women cannot teach in the church, come to me with your head covered and we'll talk. That's the only way around it. You get to, if you are going to be a strict universalist, you have to say it's going to be universal here and everywhere else that Paul makes this appeal. And you know full well you're not going to do that. And while we're at it, let's go for some really fun, absurd ones. Everybody next week greets each other with a holy kiss because the Bible told us to do it. And guess what else? When your stomach is feeling bad, you no longer get to take Tums. Everybody's drinking wine next week. <laughs> Woo! 
Communion be changing, baby. Okay, we're going to do this. What happened to Nathan? Too much communion this week. Do you see the absurdity of this? Do you know why it sounds absurd? Because <laughs> it is. That's why it sounds absurd. What if Paul is simply drawing a local analogy between Eve and those who are easily deceived, and in particular in Ephesus, it happens to be women. As we discussed last week, it could also be for this generation, for this age, most women since they were less educated. It could be this local analogy. Guess what? Paul does this creation appeal in another place. He does it in Corinthians, in Corinth. And he appeals to everyone, calling them all Eve. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, who's he talking to, church? All y'all, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion of Christ. So, based on this logic, can men be deceived too? Yep, they need to shut up. That was my goodbye because I can't talk anymore, right? Okay, so this, this, is, this is absurd. Do you see it? Do you see it? Are you tracking with me? It's just a math teacher trying to show his work here, okay? We've got to see all of this. If this is possible, if Paul often argues by analogy, and if Paul, we've proved it, uses the scripture in a, in a weird ad hoc fashion, then there's no reason to doubt that what Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 2 is that he's actually addressing a specific issue inside of their world. This is not a transcultural women's issue. So let me conclude all this. Because we're getting ready to do communion, and we're going to worship on our way out. And you guys have been hanging with me for several weeks, and I'm going to finally give you one of the positions of our church. Okay? You guys are like, finally. He's just enough talking, Nathan. Shut up. Tell us what you want to do with this and what leadership is saying. Okay, listen to me. And it's going to come through a quote from a woman named Rebecca Merrill Gruthus. She's a scholar as well. Here's what she says. If 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, can legitimately be understood as a prohibition relevant only for women in a historically specific circumstance... Ephesus, which it can, and if there is no other biblical text that explicitly forbids women to teach or have authority over men, which there is not, and if there are texts that assert the fundamental spiritual equality of women with men, which there are plenty of them, then women who are not in the circumstance of 1 Timothy 2.12 and its prohibition as it was intended, may safely follow whatever call they have to ministry. In other words, if you're a woman in the room and your problem is not gossip and being a busybody and trying to usurp authority over men and you feel called to ministry, you're a part of the team. And I want to see what you do. And I am going to walk beside you, and I'm going to be behind you. I will be your cheerleader. Never wear an address, but I'll be your cheerleader, okay? So here's what, here's what Rebecca goes on to say. This is really important. 
And this is the position of our church. In other words, it ought to at least be acknowledged that the traditionalist and complementarian interpretation is debatable on biblical grounds. It is. I proved it. I showed my work. This being the case, here's the position. We should give the benefit of the doubt to any woman who is called and qualified for pastoral leadership. I don't take any man's word that says, I feel called to this. My good, I'm testing you. You can feel called all you want. You're going to be put to the test. I'm going to find out whether or not you can speak coherently. I'm going to find out whether or not you can interpret the text of Scripture in a reasonable fashion. I'm going to put you through these kinds of uh, practices to find out if you are what you say you are. Church, listen, listen. We have to embrace these ideas because what I want you to see is that the plain reading of a text requires a whole lot more understanding. Can I get an amen? Amen. Requires a whole lot more understanding. And we need to start actually dissecting the Word of God and not listening to just what everybody has told us. And we shouldn't fall for the fear tactics because if you think women should teach, you're a cultural Marxist. You shouldn't fall for this nonsense. It's not an argument. It's just an ad hominem attack against people with whom someone disagrees. It's also not good to make no argument. you got to show your work. you got to walk through this stuff. Because this is important. Wrong biblical interpretation hurts people, doesn't it? Right biblical interpretation might see the church set free in amazing ways. So, I want to extend this appeal to all the women in this room. Next week, we're going to talk about elders, and we're going to talk about deacons, and we're going to see a difference. We're going to see a distinction. We're actually going to see, just like a husband and just like a wife, one can hold one position and another can't. It's fine. Men can't be moms. And women can't be dads. It's okay. We don't have that problem in the birthing order, do we? We don't. Maybe some of you women wish you didn't have to do that part, but, right? but we don't have that problem in this. We have the problem in the church. We're going to see there's a distinction made, but it is not a distinction that creates a problem with the giftings God has clearly given to women so that they might walk in them. Amen? This is so, so important. There is more to this than you will ever imagine. So women, I and the leadership team of this church extend an open hand to you. If you feel called and you are qualified, we want you to walk in the giftings that God has given you. We want to see you move in everything that God's got for you. I really want you to see that. I want you to see that. I want us to see that. I want the world to see that. We need to embrace this bigger view of God's family and God's body. Amen?